The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to be focused in verses 8 to 22, so if you have a Bible and want to look those over, uh, I'm going to pray, then I'll read the passage, and then we'll circle back and and make uh, comments on the passage as we work through it. So uh, before we do anything, though, let's pray for God's blessing on our time. God, we are thankful uh, for the beauty of the world that you've made. We're thankful for our place in it, that as image bearers, we each have uh, dignity and worth. We each have responsibility and purpose, and that as you have uh, created all things on purpose, you have created us on purpose as well. Uh, We thank you for this gift, for our existence, and for the chance to Uh, be in this space, to be with each other, uh, to hear your word in a translation that we can understand, uh, all good things uh, that are a part of uh, our existence, and we thank you for them. As we enter into this time, I pray that your spirit would open us up to what you have for us. We each come uh, having had different weeks that are uh, full of uh, joys and distractions and Um, challenges and victories, and as we bring all of who we are before you, open us up uh, by your spirit to what you have for us today. Amen. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, 8 to 22, and then we'll get to it. Um, What you'll notice as uh, we read this passage is there's going to be a very smooth drive along the first couple paragraphs. And then you'll notice that there starts to be some kind of weight on, on the car, and it feels like you're maybe driving through some, some wet concrete. Uh, we're going to work through all this together. Uh, there's some, some interesting, um, interesting sections here, but let's read it together, and I think you'll see uh, what we're talking about. Peter writes, <clears throat> Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for you, uh, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So um, what I want to be able to state clearly throughout this passage, there's a couple different things happening. Most of the passage is concerned with Christian ethics, and what I want to be able to state clearly at the very beginning is that this passage offers a beautiful, compelling portrait of what it means to follow Jesus' example. And it states it in many ways positively, so that it's not a list of things that you shouldn't do. It's actually like a call to be something more, something that reflects Christ. And to me, this kind of living is, is a way out of fear. And I want to state that clearly at the beginning before we get started, just in case. Uh, no, I don't, I'm not sure where the, where the road takes us, but I wanted to say that clearly. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he uses a metaphor for a house. And if you've not read that, it, it refers to um, Christianity as this sort of house where there are rules that are common to the entire house, but within each individual room, there are distinctives. And this was his way of talking about introducing people to the Christian faith, that there were certain non-negotiable things that every person within the house believed, but there were also distinctives in the individual rooms. And I think that today's passage really fits this metaphor uh, well. And today what I want us to do for the most part is to reflect on these character traits. Um, and what I'm seeing these as rules that are common to the whole house. Things that should have immediate buy-in for those professing uh, faith in Jesus. And why should there be widespread buy-in on this? When you read the first paragraph or two, what Peter's describing is Christian character that maps exactly onto the example of Jesus, right? So as you read the first two sentences, it's no accident where Peter got this material, this, uh, this example from. And further, there isn't a single thing here in my mind that Jesus' followers can't model for the world outside. So it's not enough just to say, like, well, that was Jesus, we're left to, to, you know, kind of slug it out in the trenches. As we keep in step with the Spirit, as we continue our Christian development, I think that these are all things that we're capable individually and corporately of reflecting out into the world. And that's essentially how we understand the image of the body of Christ in the New Testament, that Jesus is no longer physically visible except by his body so that the world should be able to look, at Jesus, to look at the church and say, what is the character of their God, right? That as the body of Christ, we are meant to reflect that out into the world. 
um, captured perfectly in the parable of the Good Samaritan, to be a good neighbor. Like, what does it mean uh, to, be, to be a good neighbor? And what we find in this passage and others is the big picture of what Christian character should look like. How we relate to others, how we relate to the culture in general. And we see the broad strokes of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, what it should look like without telling you exactly what it should look like day to day. And that's what I, I appreciate is that it's giving us the broadest possible strokes, even though within the body there is going to be some diversity in how we express the mission of God in our city. Does that make sense? Because it's sort of like nothing else after that. Like if we're not standing on that ground together, then it doesn't make sense for me to proceed. In which case it could be a very quick sermon and then, you know, lunch is early. But, but I think that that's critical, that these are the rules that are common to the whole house. And maybe another way that might help flesh it out, in education, we talk about soft skills. Um, so when in a classroom culture, there's never an opportunity where we just sit down and say, okay, for the next 50 minutes, I'm going to teach you how to be adaptable to your surroundings. Like for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to teach you a lesson on time management, right? We don't have those uh, sorts, of, sorts of things. We're not going to teach you overtly how to relate well to the people around you, right? We're not going to teach you how to, <laughs> I could just make a whole list of them because it's all that really matters. Like, I, I'm sorry, I teach, for those of you who don't know me, I teach here in Manchester, I teach math. Compared to the soft skills, math doesn't matter. Social studies, science, none of that stuff matters. What matters is your ability to listen to other people, to reciprocate in conversation, like all these soft skills, those are the things that, that really matter. But what happens is hopefully we're working on these soft skills in the context of the content that we're teaching, right? Does that make so? For example, in math, I might teach you adaptability because I've given you a couple examples and now I'm going to throw a slightly more complex example where you're going to have to adapt to the variable being on the other side of the equation or something like that. So that's how we teach those soft skills. At least in the way that I think about it, I feel like formation in the faith is basically the same thing. We learn content, we're Protestants, we're all about doctrine and all that good stuff, but the, the character traits are the things that serve right alongside that content. And what they are is they're complementary realities. It has to be both, right? So being correct doctrinally but being rude at the same time is not okay. It's an incomplete picture. And on the flip side, it's not enough to be kind of a nice person, but be wishy-washy doctrinally when you're called to speak the truth. Right? I hope that makes sense. These are complementary realities. We might think of the fruit of the Spirit uh, that Jacob mentioned last week, love and joy and peace and patience and all these things. These are dispositions that should be common to the whole body of Christ, however we work that, work that out in community, in our families, as individuals, in our friendships, and all those things. Um, I think we see a window into this as we read as we read the Gospels, that Jesus' harshest words are for those who were right, <laughs> but 
quite wrong in the way that they related to other people. These, these religious leaders, and I'd be careful not to saw off the branch that I'm standing on, these religious leaders who weighed people down with unnecessary burdens and didn't lift a finger to help them. I know that that just seems so far away in the distant past and has no contemporary relevance to us, but those were the, the areas where Jesus had the harshest words for people. And just to offer my completely unsolicited social commentary, I think we're at a place in our society that is disproportionately focused on this sort of rhetoric and on being right and advancing an argument that may or may not need to be advanced with no sensitivity to the actual human being who bears God's image that you're talking to. Maybe it's just my context, I don't know, but I'm... I want us to focus on how we're known as Christians. I think that this passage points us to that. And I think that this can offer us confirmation. It can offer us assurance as we read this. We're like, yeah, we're on the right track. And I think, honestly, like I don't want anybody to take this as my critique of King's Cross Church. It's actually been a real blessing (laughs) to me to be here uh, because I do feel this sense of unity in the way that we pursue these sorts of issues at the same time that we want to do it in a loving and Christ-like way. So this isn't all critique, but it, it is uh, something I think that the church needs to grapple with in general. So it can offer us a lot of assurance, but it can also call us to repentance. If nothing else, it's a great opportunity just to reflect on these traits. So the main point is, even as exiles in the world, we should be known for Christ-like character. So First Peter is all about what it means to live out our exile in a confusing world, and even in the midst of that, we should be modeling Christ-like character. So first, uh, I'm going to bring us through three things that we should be known for. Verses 8 to 12, we should be known for blessing, and more specifically, we should be known for being a blessing. Verses 13 to 17, we should be known for proper zeal, and I use the modifier proper zeal because Zeal can be, you know, Paul, for example, before he became a believer, was a zealous follower of God. Um, So much so that he was on his way to arrest and murder Christians. Now, that's the sort of zeal that, uh, while admirable on one level, isn't quite what we're looking for as God's people. So we want to be known for proper zeal. And finally, we want to be known for faithful witness. So in the first sentence... And there's not really a whole lot of explanation that goes into this. Peter says, To sum up, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Like, if that sentence was the only Bible that we had, you wouldn't really need to go much further than that. Right? That these character traits... I just think about it for myself, and again, it could just be my context. This is the most winsome example that I think that you could... Like, who doesn't want to be around a person who displays these character traits? Somebody who... A body of believers who are unified. People who have sympathy, who have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I think that these are compelling traits that people have. And these are examples that we see in the person of Jesus. Like these, actually the individual words are drawn out of the Gospels themselves. And we have a couple examples here, Um, particularly for the, um, I think the ESV translates it, 
uh, tender heart. Now, this is an interesting word. Um, it's a really gross-sounding Greek word. Like, it almost sounds like somebody's coughing it up. And what I like about that is that it's, it's a gross word for what is, like, sort of a gross principle. Like, it actually talks about your insides. So when I taught in a youth group setting, I, I referred to this as, like, gut love. Like, it's actually a word for your intestines. <laughs> Like that kind of, I'm sorry that that's gross, but that's the way that like Greek and Hebrew uses images to, to describe these things. It's talking about the deepest possible level of compassion that you can have for another person. It's not rote, it's not obligatory, it's something you feel at the core of who you are. This is the love that you feel for another person. And we don't just see it here in First Peter. Uh, if we could go to the next slide. Perhaps one more, there we go. So when Je this is referring to Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now that's that same word, like he felt in the deepest parts of who he is, he, he felt love and compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Next slide. When the Lord saw her, now this is in the context of the widow at Nain where her son has passed away and Jesus happens upon this uh, funeral. Uh, and he comes across this, and he, they translate it here as his heart went out to her. It's the same thing. It's he, he feels this in the deepest part of who he is, and he said to her, weep not. Next, yep, next one's good. Um, Paul writes this, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, that these are all Christian character traits. It's the same word there, that Paul's love for the Philippians reflects Jesus' own uh, compassion, his own love, uh, his—I <laughs> was going to say his own intestines, because that's literally what the word means. Um, but, but I hope I hope you get the idea. And just imagine, if you could, like, put before your mind if if you, as a follower of Jesus, if this is how you were known. And Peter will go on in this passage to offer these extreme examples, right? People who are being treated with evil. Like that's what the passage said. It assumes a certain level of persecution. So if even in the most extreme cases, we don't fight back with these same weapons, like instead of winning, instead of being right, we just look to bless others. Like that's what Peter's calling us to here. Right? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay aggression for aggression. Like that doesn't help. Instead, be a blessing to other people. Which, if I look at the example of Jesus correctly, means that you're going to end up absorbing a lot of that. That we don't repay evil for evil or hate for hate, reviling for reviling. And if that is in the most extreme cases... As you take a couple steps down the ladder toward more kind of petty annoyances, you start to see that this is a manageable way to be in the world, like to be able to absorb um, sort of petty squabbles or annoyances. Um, as we move away from full-blown evil into more mundane sorts of disagreements, uh, empowered by God's Spirit, I think that, that this is achievable. Not in our own strength, I'm not suggesting any of that, but I, I think there is the expectation in these passages that we would reflect this out to the world. And again, kind of on this idea of imagining if this was how you were known, as the passage continues, Peter quotes uh, Psalm 34, and he just look at a couple of the traits here. He says, those who desire to love life 
and to see good days. Like, who doesn't want to be around a person like that? Like, somebody who is joyful, who loves life, who wants to see good days. Even further, those who seek peace and pursue it. Right? My guess is that most of the objections that people have to Christianity isn't based on, boy, they're just always seeking peace and pursuing it. Like, oh, they're so gross, the way that they're so joyful and looking to have good days. Like, I, I can't stand that. Uh, I, I just don't see that as the problem. Those who turn from evil and to do good. And I think it's a fair question at this point, in our society to ask if this is how God's people are perceived. One thing I would add here, if it's any value to you, is to notice the positive statements alongside the more negative ones, right? So statements where the passage calls you to actually do something in conjunction with where it asks you not to do something. So some, and maybe this could just be me, If Christians are perceived as people who have this long list of things that they don't believe, they don't do, they don't agree with, they don't, they don't, they don't, they can't, like, there's some of that, but just imagine being known constructively or positively in what you're for, (laughs) right? If you're identifying as somebody who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't dance, okay, uh, what do you do? Like, I just picture somebody sitting in their living room like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Like, that's hardly abundant life as I picture it. Like, that doesn't seem like a compelling example or what Jesus was talking about. On the flip side, somebody who's actually constructively for something and is pursuing it, that's, that's winsome, in my humble opinion. Um, so, Just pay attention to those positive traits and think for yourself, what am I for, not just what am I against? And now, practically speaking, before we move on to the next point, how do we cultivate these traits? It's not just enough to know what the words mean. Like, this isn't an education problem in the church. It's not like we don't have well-developed systems of teaching people what these words mean. We know what humility is. We know what compassion is. We know what forgiveness is. At least as I experience it, the problem is not that I don't understand it. It's just I don't want to do it. Right? If I'm just being honest, like I don't want to show compassion for people, especially people who aren't like me. Right? I don't want to forgive uh, naturally in and of my own power. I don't want to show compassion. The problem isn't that I don't know what the words mean. The problem is that God really needs to get a hold of those areas of my life, and I need to... Uh, to be drawn to other people in that way. So first, I would say that you want to really meditate on these examples in the Bible. Upcoming in the fall, we're going to have a a series through Luke. And I think it's really an awesome opportunity just to reflect specifically on Jesus' interactions with people. Like, those are so interesting and winsome and, quite frankly, unexpected when you read them closely the ways that Jesus interacts with people. He doesn't need to go out of his way to make a point about what he doesn't believe. So it stands to reason that we shouldn't uh, need to do that either. But he does have moments where he's a little bit harsh, and then we want to look specifically at who is he harsh with, and what are those circumstances when he's compassionate what's happening there. So we want to look at those examples, and I would even add... you. 
maybe a little bit closer to home, like who are the people around you in your immediate context who model these character traits? Um, and to look to them and to ask them, like, what, how do you do that, <laughs> right? Like, how do you show compassion or hospitality or all these winsome positive things? So second, uh, in terms of how do we cultivate these traits, I think it's really important, and not just from a Christian formation standpoint, but also just from a basic human development standpoint, is to get around people that you don't always agree with, right? That I think that that's an important thing. Uh, and, and just to be specific, I mean, I, I have plenty of, you might run into these people, like you could join the Manchester Sports and something where they have like kickball leagues or play softball. Or if sports isn't your thing, there are endless opportunities in the city to get around people who might not agree with you. The reason being, I think first, that's inherently healthy. Uh, to do. You should not be around people who agree with you all the time. Second, I think that it helps to put a human face on the issues of our day, right? So we could probably fill the room with these examples, but like I have a different view of students who are growing up in a single parent household than I, because my parents were divorced. Like I understand at their age group what that looked like. Right? So I don't have this abstract category of single parenting and how that affects an adolescent. Right? So when I think of those things, I'm not thinking in philosophical categories, I'm thinking of people. As I think about contentious racial issues in our day, I'm not interested in the rhetoric. I'm picturing my diverse students. I'm putting a face to that issue. And if you're always around people who reflect your way of being in the world, I think that you're a couple steps down the road toward dehumanizing, if I could be fair. And I think that that starts to put us squarely in the category of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You're arguing against ideas and not considering people. So whatever the issue is for you, right, whatever the hot button and social issues of the day are, do you actually attach a face to that issue? Do you have coworkers who, you know, fill in the blank with what that issue might be? And not categorizing people and not engaging in the rhetoric and trying to put people in boxes, none of that stuff, but just you have friends who, who don't necessarily reflect your belief system. And there's plenty of opportunities in the world to do that. So, all of that to say, by these character traits, we are known for blessing. That's what God's people should be known for. And the way that it looks here, it's compassion, it's unity, it's absorbing wrong, not responding to it, right? We don't respond in kind. So, this brings us into the next point, which is uh, Christians should be known for proper zeal. I love this first question. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right, if you're displaying these character traits, who do you really know that has a problem with you being too compassionate? Right, who suffers wrong for doing what is good? And I can't think of a single example. Um, Jesus runs afoul of the religious leaders. So that's a, kind of a separate thing, but... Um, 
he reintroduces this category, Peter does, of faithful suffering, right? So I think the answer to the question is, there's really nobody to harm you for doing good. But he goes on to say, but even if, now he gives this extreme example again, which is even if uh, people, uh, if you should suffer wrong for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed, right? Even in the most extreme example, you don't have to respond in kind. And he uses, if you look in verse 14, especially at the end, it says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Can you see that? In, that's how the ESV translates it. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. It actually says, don't fear their fear. The word fear is used twice. It's used in ver- the noun and the verb form. And you think, who could possibly care? Like, I just wanted to impress you with that. That's all. No, I'm just kidding. I don't really care to impress you. It's actually an allusion to Isaiah. But the ESV doesn't bear out that that word is actually used twice. The New American Standard translates it, don't be intimidated by their fear. So the word is used, is used twice. And I think that what's happening here and this illustrates a pretty important Christian ethic is we don't respond in kind. Like that's what the rest of the passage has been saying. You don't respond to anger with anger. You don't return evil for evil. You don't fear their fear. So to put it another way, God's people don't respond in kind. We don't fight fire with fire. (laughs) We fight fire with water. See, like, and some of this comes out of like a sports psychology, like high school and college sorts of athletic stuff. You don't respond in kind, right? If you're starting to feel anxious, you don't pile more anxiety on that. That doesn't help. You respond with the opposing force. And if these categories are a little too weird, just think about Jesus. Does Jesus respond to violence with more violence? Of course he doesn't. He absorbs the violence that's directed his way. So instead of answering aggression with more aggression, we show humility. Because that's what Jesus does. right? We don't respond to fear with more fear. That's not the Christian ethic. And again, to return to the extreme example here of outright evil, we don't respond to evil with more evil, um, even if we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Instead, in verse 15, it says, we sanctify Christ in our hearts. And it says to always be ready to give an answer or give an account for the hope that you have in you, that great apologetics verse which is modified by the phrase, yet with gentleness and reverence. So it doesn't mean that you respond in a harsh way. It doesn't mean that you're aggressive in giving the reason for your hope. You do so with gentleness and compassion. Even if we're persecuted, what, what Peter's saying here is it's better for us to suffer for doing good, which has been clearly defined, I hope, by this point. Uh, rather than, um, you know, suffer for doing evil. Uh, And I think that there are examples where, and I think maybe, maybe we could all, we kind of muddy the water sometimes because we respond in ways that is unkind, right? So we respond to aggression with more aggression. 
And there it's not persecuted for righteousness sake anymore. Like we've muddied the water by the way that we responded. It's better, it's better to just absorb, absorb the evil um, or absorb the wrongdoing or aggression or whatever it might be. So that's being known for proper zeal. And if the question is, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Um, I would just say try it for a while. I think you won't find too many people. And as I look at the people around me, uh, even as we look at people around the neighborhood, there's nobody who's going to respond negatively to overwhelming compassion. Right? People are, are dying. Like, <laughs> people are just drowning in every conceivable way. People are suffering. Uh, people are discouraged. If you can meet those sorts of things uh, with Christ-like character of compassion, of empathy, I think that that goes a long way to the mission of Jesus in our city. So finally, we're known for faithful witness. And this is where we take a pretty massive logic swerve in the passage. So uh, this is where we get into Christ suffered uh, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that's perfectly clear. And then it goes into, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is kind of a confusing passage, but it gets confusinger. Uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, right? Now, I'm sure this is a memory verse for you growing up, and you probably have lots of really strong opinions on this, but... Um, the, the logic swerve here is a little bit challenging. And if you have ever read this passage and you come to it and say like, huh, that's interesting. I think that that's the right response <laughs> because that it is, uh, it is confusing. Even a figure like Martin Luther said, I can't remember the exact word he used for it. He liked the passage, but I think like people who write commentaries have to say that. But then he went on to say, I'm pretty sure I don't know what Peter's talking about here. So if Martin Luther, of all people, can, uh, can show humility and not really being clear, I think it frees the rest of us up to be uh, understandably confused by this passage. So um, I'm just going to say a couple things on this. Uh, you want to remember the overall context here. So my method in coming to a confusing verse is just to take a big step back and look at like what's the big overarching picture here. So what we have here, I think, is the overall context is faithfulness to the way of Jesus. So in verses 9 and 17, it talks about being a blessing to others. And the conclusion of the chapter, the last verse, um, it says, uh, where are we? Um, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So you're on this trajectory of the exaltation of Christ, right? So within this context, I think it's understanding that Jesus is the perfect example of faithful suffering, which is what has been talked about all along. And that this, like, preaching to the spirits in prison, even beyond the scope of his life, just shows, it just puts us on this trajectory to exaltation, right? So I think there is some logic to it, and the idea is that Jesus shows faithfulness even in the midst of suffering at the extreme examples, and that we also should be looking to be a blessing uh, in, in our context. And he does that by kind of way overstating. Now, if you're curious, who are the spirits... Um, 
in prison. This is kind of an interesting, uh, if, if that's your thing. It's unlike anything else in the New Testament. There are four basic views. One is that uh, Jesus actually preached through Noah way back in the days of the flood, which to me seems a little bit ridiculous, but it was Augustine, so it's like he gets, you know, nobody wants to say like Augustine was just flat out wrong. So it's still, you know, it's still there, but admittedly weird. The second and third options are kind of the same, where it's um, basically the belief that Jesus went and preached in the time between his death and resurrection. Uh, he went and preached to the Old Testament saints or to Noah's day in particular. Um, those are other options. And then the last one involves the Nephilim and that Jesus went and preached to like fallen angels. Um, and that seems to be the view that most people hold because it refers to spirits, right? Uh, so they don't think that that means it refers to people. So if you're interested in that, I do have, uh, there's lots of speculation on those options. I'd be happy to point you in the direction of some material. Um, but I do, because I'm running out of time, I do want to shift toward talking briefly about baptism because this is another, you know, somewhat troubling uh, sentence that gets a, gets a little bit twisted. So uh, Peter says... Um, at the end of verse 20, they were brought safely through water. And then in verse 21, baptism, uh, which corresponds to, you know, this, the floodwaters, now saves you. And that statement can be a little bit troubling. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as uh, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just very briefly, it seemed like this would be a good opportunity to highlight what I think is a more healthy view of um, baptism in the New Testament. First is, I don't think that uh, Peter is saying that the act of baptism will actually save you, right? There's no magical property in the water. Uh, it's not something, and, and that's why he says, like, not like the removal of dirt from the body. Like, there's nothing to the act of baptism that would actually save you. So I don't believe that the act of baptism is, is salvific. However, I do not think that the New Testament views baptism as optional, right? That this is on the menu of Christian options. You might decide to be baptized, you might not. I think that the New Testament assumes that believers will be baptized. Um, but, because there are some denominations that would teach that like, from the moment of conversion, like if you, if you die in a car accident on the way home before you're baptized, like your salvation suspect, at first I thought like no sane person still believes that. And then David McCurdy sent me a message from a pamphlet that he got, which shows that there are people who still believe that. That's, uh, I, I, then I realized I was on stage and I was about to say that's crazy. Um, <laughs> but I didn't say that, I was just thinking it, right? Um, Anything that is that anxiety-inducing is troubling to me. Anything that would enslave you to that sort of fear or put it on you, um, I think that, that that's problematic. I think that the reason the New Testament assumes that you'll be baptized immediately is because other than actually believing in Jesus, there was no reason to be baptized. It wasn't like, like in my family, it would be like, hey, we're all going to get together and celebrate somebody's christening. And it's a totally cultural thing. So as the church sort of comes into favor with the empire, as it becomes the state-sponsored religion, 
historically, there's sort of a reason to kind of pump the brakes a little bit and say, we really need to educate people on what, what they're doing here, right? So the baptism wasn't, uh, wasn't immediate at that point. So um, I realize that I have run all over time, and I apologize for that. I am going to stop here and kind of, I do want to allow some time for Q&A, um, but I do just actually very briefly, I want to circle back to the beginning of the passage because I think the real world cash value is in this Christ-like character. Um, and I, I, I want to circle back to this just a little bit. To be known for our love and our compassion, our humility, it offers us this incredible opportunity uh, in our culture. Uh, and if you've ever been to Mount Washington, you know how quickly the weather can change, right? So you can sit on the observation deck and you can literally watch clouds roll in and within 15 minutes the whole landscape uh, can change. And you can sit atop the peak and you can look at nothing but clouds, right? If you've ever been there on a bad weather day, that's kind of all you're, you're looking at. And if you were to sit there long enough, you could actually think that the clouds are all there is, right? If you never see beyond the clouds to the deep valleys and these incredible, uh, glorious, expansive landscapes in New Hampshire, you might think that the clouds are all that there is. And I think it's the same in our society. We can sit and look at the clouds and think that they're the only thing that's real, right? We can see anger, we can see aggression, we can see division, we can see strife. Just meanness, callousness, cynicism. We can see these things and we think that that's what's real. Uh, and I think what this passage offers us uh, is an opportunity not just to see for ourselves, but to model for our neighbors that beyond those clouds, there are just these incredibly open beautiful and glorious vistas. And that's the abundant life that Jesus offers us. So I'm going to pray, and then if there's anything Q&A-wise, I'd be happy to engage that. So let's pray together. Father, as we've looked at your word, I pray that you would help us to focus in on the things that have uh, mattered to us. I pray that each of us would be encouraged in some way to... Uh, to think about your character, to reflect it in our homes and in our neighborhoods and uh, with our friends. And we know that it takes your spirit to do that, so I pray that you would achieve that end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.